certain defining moments in our lives that um, sometimes you can go back to them and you can remember. I remember exactly what I was wearing on that day. You have those moments? You can remember. You can almost, if you really sit and you think about it, you can almost remember the smells. You can remember who was in the situation or what was going on or whatever. And it's just, just certain. sometimes it's tragedy. Sometimes it's just wonderful highlights and mountaintop experiences in our life. Uh, it could be a lot of different things. But, but there's these moments in life that we go back to and we're like, man, that just, wow. And it just is a kind of a high watermark in our life that we just never can forget, right? And then there's other things that for all of us is just the culture we live in are just kind of rhythms of our lives that, that uh, you know, it's just part of, of, of the way we live and we structure our lives around that. Most of my life, I, you know, you orient your life around, and I think all of us probably do, there's the fall, school, semester, first semester, then you got Christmas break, and then you have second semester, and then you have summer. And we still, even when you're working nine to five and you're punching the clock and you're going up, we still have this mentality that there's, you know, there's the fall, there's the winter, then there's the summer break, right? Even though you don't get a break anymore, you know what I'm saying? But, and when you have kids, that even is reinforced. And then you throw some holidays into that. Most of us would celebrate Christmas, and so you come around to Christmas, and we got, we, you know, build up to Thanksgiving, and we have Christmas, and then we have Easter, and you have all these different things going on, right? And then there's all the extra holidays that are thrown in. There's, there's you know, um, Cousin Day, Brother Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Dog's Day, Grandparents' Day, Neighbor's Day, all these different things that I personally feel like is a conspiracy by Hallmark. I think that Hallmark has some heavy lobbyists, uh, evidently, in Washington, and they're constantly kind of pushing for certain days because it gives them another opportunity to sell a card, right, you know? And so Boss's Day, Worker's Day, Everybody's Day, Somebody's Day, Hallmark's Day is really what they should all be called. And um, they're trying to find a way to push it, right? But what happens in this passage of Scripture is God is going to give Israel a, an event that's about to happen and transpire that he's going to tell them, I want you to recalibrate your lives and restructure. And it just blows my mind when I read this passage, the significance of what we are talking about today and what we're going to celebrate here shortly. So in chapter 12, verse 1, listen to this. He says, And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, In the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Let that sink in for a second. This month shall be the beginning of months for you, and it shall be the first month of the year for you. I don't know if that even rings a bell for you, how significant that is. I mean, this is back before daytimers and Franklin planners and iPhones with iCal in your pocket, right? This is before you had calendars that are reminding you of all the different things going on and our, our lives were so connected with um, the, the calendar and the events and the summer and the fall and the winter and the this and the that and whatever. This is before all of that stuff. They still they operated based upon a civil calendar that was based upon um, a lunar calendar that helped them in an agrarian society, planting and harvesting and and, uh, you know, all of that stuff. There was kind of these rhythms that had tied to the moon that was cyclical. And that's how they oriented their life. But God says, I'm going to I'm going about to do something. And this is going to be so significant. That you're going to change the way you structure your lives. You're going to change your perspective and the way you orient all of who you are as a people and as individuals and as families. Everybody is going to reorient 
everything based upon the events that are about to transpire. And this is going to be for you the beginning of months for you. Your calendar is going to be shifted and this is going to start the beginning of the year for you. It's going to begin with what is about to happen and you're going to celebrate this annually. This is such a significant event. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all of the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for the household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. In other words, kind of somehow work it out with your neighbors and make sure that there's not extra lamb left over on one person's table and another table they don't have enough lamb. And so let's just work it out in the neighborhood and we're going we're gonna to connect with, again, just another beautiful picture of biblical community where we're reaching out. How awesome would that be if, if our neighbors were transformed, if our neighborhood was transformed to where we did life and worship Jesus along with our neighbors, who many of our neighbors are far from God. In fact, many of us don't even know where our neighbors are at spiritually, but what if we did and what if we did life with them and what if we worship God with our neighbors? How cool would that be if God's such brought such a revival and spiritual awakening in our community, Northeast Tennessee. How cool would that be? But you're going to kind of divvy it up, make sure that there's enough for each, each home. And if the household's too small for the lamb, you work it out with your neighbor. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. And you take it from the sheep, or if you can take it from the sheep or from the goats, And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. So in other words, you're going to take the lamb, you're going to select a lamb, unblemished, and you're going to pull it away and you're going to isolate it for a period of days. And we'll talk about the significance of that here in a moment. And and then on the 14th day, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, um, you're going to come together and you shall kill your lamb at twilight. They will kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of the raw, any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning shall you shall burn. And in the manner, in this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. In other words, you're going to have your helmet on and your shoulder pads on, your mouthpiece. On, you're ready to you're ready to hit the road. So eat it. And, um, you know, start the engine, have the car running out in the, in the, in the driveway, because as soon as this is over, you're going to be hitting the road, is what he's telling them. This is the first time this, these events happen. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. We're going to come back to that verse 12. It's a significant verse. Here in a moment, verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live 
And when you see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as the feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly, no work shall be done on those days. But whatever, what anyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your, your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person should be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. There's kind of a, uh, it's a big deal, the leavened bread, if you you haven't noticed, right? No leaven. By the way, leaven is a picture of sin. We find that in the New Testament. It's, it's, It's highlighted. But leaven is a picture of sin. And so there's two reasons for the unleavened bread. One of them is because we don't have time to sit around and wait for your bread to rise. All right, so just make the bread. Forget the leaven because we're going to cook this stuff. We're going to eat it. We've got to hit the road. This, this is quick lunch, quick meal, quick food for your family. Just make the bread, forget the leaven, cook it, flatbread, unleavened, and we're going to take off. We're going to eat. Secondly, so part of it, it speaks of the, the, you know, that they need to leave in haste. They need to leave rapidly. The second issue is it pictures sin. And so it was to be purged from the house, from the cupboards, from everything. They were to go through every cupboard in their home, they make sure that all the leaven is gone, and then we would celebrate uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we have two feasts that are surfacing here, Passover and Unleavened Bread, okay? So unleavened, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a week-long deal, and it is kicked off with the Passover at the beginning of it. Does that make sense? That's kind of, I know it's kind of confusing. First day, 14th day, fifth day, seventh day, 14, you know, it gets confusing. But that's the rhythm, okay? Begins, Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's going to last for a week, and the First night of that is, is celebrating the Passover. The second night of that is celebrating the Passover. All right, and this is, by the way, uh, celebrated in Israel. Well, in Jewish homes to this day, I was uh, had the opportunity to go to Israel um, for a Passover camp. So uh, it's a national holiday this day, and it was really cool because it was a camp for Christian, Messianic Christian or Jewish Christians and Arabic Christians that would come together for like a youth camp. And so we took a team that went there and we were able to lead um, this camp for them because it's a holiday. They had days off. And so they came in, had this youth camp, and, uh, and then we had three days to tour the, the whole of Israel, which is like going to Disney World for lunch, right? It's just not really, it's kind of ridiculous. But nonetheless, we were able to go there. It was cool. But, uh, but through the whole week, we still had to, we had to obey the laws that were here because it was a big deal to them. They, still, they were still careful not to eat leavened bread. So we had lasagna made with matzah, okay? They had lasagna made with um, unleavened bread, 
and that was the layers, okay? And, and all, everything we ate was very creative, very interesting, the different things they would eat, but all of them were kosher, and all of them met the dietary laws and were consistent with that of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so pretty, pretty awesome. So verse 18, in the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in the houses of anyone eats. Okay, we already said that. So verse 21, then Moses calls the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin. So you're to kill the lamb and you're to take the blood, which is very precious, and catch it in, a, in the basin, in a bowl. Catch it in the bowl. Don't let it pour out. In fact, Leviticus says that the life of the animal is in its blood. Blood represents life. That's why it's so significant. That's why it's such a beautiful picture in the Old Testament. It carries out into the New Testament. Blood represents life. And that's why when we often... People think, well, why did Jesus have to die on the cross, shed his blood? It seems so ancient and archaic and unnecessary. Why did that have to happen? Because a life had to be given for a life. For God to forgive us, blood had to be shed. Life had to be lost. We need to pay for our sins. And the way you would take a life is to take the blood. And so Jesus had to have his blood spilt out, had to have his blood shed on behalf of us. And this was, he's the fulfillment of this picture that we're seeing beginning in, in the Passover. It went before that, but nonetheless, being laid out beautifully in the Passover, the life of the animal is in its blood. And so he tells him, you're going to catch that blood. Don't waste it, catch it. And then you're going to take a hyssop, which is like a little bushy weed thing, and like a, it's your paintbrush. You're going to put that in the basin, and you're going to dip it in the blood, and then you're going to touch it to the lintel, the two-door post, with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel of the doorpost, the Lord shall pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the houses to strike you and shall observe the right as a statute for you. And for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord has given you, them verse 25, and he has promised, so in the future, tell him, look, you guys are not going to live in Egypt. You're about to, um, we're about to pop the locks, and you're going free. You're about to get out of here. And, and I'm promised the land flowing of milk and honey, honey that I'm going to give you. And so we're about to send you to a new land. And I'm going to deliver you. And I'm going to give you a land and an inheritance that you don't deserve, that you didn't build, that you did not create, that you did not earn. I'm freely giving something to you. All you have to go do is, is, is go and enjoy it and accept it. And so he tells them, but when you get there, this land that I promised, you need to keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service, this festival or this feast? You shall say it's the Lord's it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. They did so they did. You would think that 
the plagues of Egypt, you think about the, the significance of what God has supernaturally done to show his power over all of creation in the plagues. And then this final plague and the significance of every family gathering around the little lamb that was killed on behalf of their family, blood shed, put on the doorpost, put on the, uh, the lentil of the door, and then they consume the meat from the, the lamb, eat the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs that was to remind them of the bitterness of slavery and of bondage of sin. You would think that there's no possible way that they're ever going to forget what God has done in their lives. There's no way they're going to forget, but God knew that they will forget. Year after year is going to go by, and slowly they're going to forget. You, you think it'd be impossible. Just imagine the smell of the lambs being roasted all over Israel. The fresh kill, the blood on the door, the sound as they walked out of Egypt of the Egyptians wailing and crying and grieving because the firstborn of all the land, the firstborn children and um, adults even and animals were dead. Death had covered the land. Burials taking place. Grieving. Just people just destitute. Uh, The significance of that as they walked out, you think they would never possibly forget. But what would happen is those memories would become more and more faint in their life. And for that matter, generations would come along that didn't experience the sights, the smells, the sounds, and the weight and bondage of slavery. And little by little, they would forget what God had done. And God says, this is so significant that you're going to recalibrate your lives. Your calendar is going to commemorate what's happened. And not only is your calendar going to shift so that you never forget what I've done for you and how I've delivered you, but on top of that, I want you to celebrate this Passover annually as a reminder, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as a reminder of what I've done for you. A couple things. The first thing in the Passover is, is the need to redefine our lives. Again, we already talked about this. But you need to go back in your life, and, and I think a good thing for us to be thinking about is what really defines me? What's the most significant event in my life? And, and I would raise the question that should it not be the day that our lives were surrendered to Christ? Should it not be the day that or the moment or the season or the year or the point where the cross really became the big deal to us? where We finally clicked and we realized our need for a savior. And some of you have made decisions to follow Christ so young that you, you don't really remember um, maybe the, the date and the, the time. And that's fine. But, but the issue is, have you ever come to the point in your life where you really understood the bondage and captivity and allurement and the, um, the harshness of slavery to sin? Is there ever a time in your life where you came to that point? Even if you followed Christ pretty young in your life, I mean, you might not have been, obviously, you probably weren't, you know, a a gang member and probably never killed anybody or did, you know, sold drugs and whatever and did a whole bunch of bad things. Yeah, I understand. But nonetheless, the lostness of a child is as significant as the lostness of adult. They just haven't done as many bad things, but they're on a trajectory. They're going in the same path, right? And there's a point where to be found, we have to first realize we're lost. To be rescued and set free from bondage and captivity, we have to come to the awareness that we are in bondage and captivity, that we were in bondage and captivity. 
It's important for us to come to the point and to think about our need for a Savior. That's why we talk often about letting uh, Jesus become bigger in our life, that our awareness of God as it grows and our, our awareness of our sinfulness should be increasing. If you do not realize that you're more sinful now than you did a year ago, then I would maintain that you're probably not spending a whole lot of time in the Word you're not really listening with a receptive heart. You're not placing yourself under the preaching and teaching of the word. You should, your, your awareness of your sin should be growing. It's not that you're getting worse. You're actually becoming more like Jesus. But so, so this is what happens. My awareness of sin, okay, when I first followed Christ was huge. I just knew I'm, I'm just a pathetic. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me reverse that. When I first trusted Christ, I'm thinking of my sin as being, you know, like as, as long as I don't use profanity, I don't kill anybody, I don't, you know, don't do certain bad things, then I'm, I'm really not that bad of a person, right? And so I trust in Jesus, and by my awareness of sin is not that big. Now, the sin in my life, probably there's a bunch of it. And as I grow in my relationship with Christ, the sin is less and less, and I'm more and more like Jesus. And so I'm becoming more and more Christ-like. That's what I look like, hopefully. But in reality, my awareness of my sin, that was small before. Okay, Before, I'm just worried about using the right words and not using profanity or or hurting anybody, or just whatever. You know, I'm thinking of big things, right? Um, but now, my awareness of sin is so much bigger that, I, I mean, I'm having to repent of attitudes and pride and anger and frustration and all kinds of things that are so internal and small in my life that I didn't, I didn't even know was on the map back then. So my awareness of sin is so much greater now. Even though there's probably less sin, I think I'm more like Jesus, hopefully by His grace. My awareness is so much larger. And so are you growing in your awareness of your need for Christ? Are you, you should be more aware today of how harsh the bondage to sin was and the potential for um, slavery and captivity and how we often will go back to Egypt, back to the world, and sell ourselves back into slavery. I mean, God has delivered us from something that was so harsh and, and horrible and just, I mean, we prayed that God would deliver us and now we're in this new land and we're constantly looking back going, man, you know, I really miss the flavors of Egypt. I kind of miss some things about Egypt. I, I miss some of the, well, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't, as time goes on, we begin to forget the, the bitterness of captivity, the bitterness of slavery, hence the bitter herbs that he asked them eat annually to remind them of the bitterness of slavery. Are you, do you remember these things? We need to redefine our lives and know that everything flows out of the cross. Everything flows out of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. For, that, for us, that's the beginning of time for us. The most significant event in world history was the cross. Everything flows out of that. The second thing is in verse 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. But then there's this second little verse here that I think is just this phrase. Incredible. Worth underlining in your Bible. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. God is reminding them that I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to send you out. And I, these plagues were not just fun. I mean, I wasn't just giving different things that were going to kind of make life tough for the Egyptians, whatever. No, no. I am showing that all of the gods of Egypt that they prayed to for life, that they, the river Nile, they prayed to the God of the river, that, praying that God would, would, would bring the, the floodwaters that would, that would spill over, that would um, bring uh, water and nourishment to all of their fields and their crops, 
praying that God would bring the sun, um, that, that, that their harvest would come, praying to the frog god Hect that God would bring fertility and that they would have, um, you know, the afterlife would go well for them. Some of you remember the slide that showed the scales that the soul was weighed of a person before uh, one of their gods, uh, looking to see if Osiris, I think it was, if he would accept them, whether they were good enough. All these different gods that they looked to for peace and for joy and for life and for escape and for hope and for satisfaction. All these gods that they looked to to, fit, to to meet all of the different needs in their life. God is saying, I am going to execute judgment on all of those gods. And I'm going to destroy them. And you say, well, that doesn't really help me because I don't really, I don't, I don't, I'm not a big frog person. I don't, I don't worship frogs. I don't worship rivers. I don't worship the sun. I don't worship moons. I don't worship, so I'm good. I'm good. I don't worship those things. Oh, no. We're much more creative than that. You know, I, I don't know if you believe in evolution or whatever, but I can tell you that one thing that does evolve is our creativity and finding new ways to sin and new functional saviors to create. But the reality is you and I have our own host of saviors that we have created in our likeness to meet our needs. And I don't know what your needs are, but your need for identity, possibly. Your need for escape, your need for peace, your need for joy, your need for hope, your need for um, fun, laughter, uh, to forget stuff, to deal with anxiety, to deal with fear, to deal with um, guilt, to deal with whatever the different things that you're struggling for. We all create different escape valves in our life, functional saviors that we that they function as the thing we look to to give us salvation, to give us peace, to give us hope. That could be a lot of different things. That could be just binge-watching television. That could be um, music. That could be your career. That could be your family. That could be trying to get a family. That could be trying to run after a person, trying to you know, get married, or, or your spouse, uh, if you are married. That could be somebody else's spouse. It could be a lot of different things. That could be our functional saviors. But we're constantly creating functional saviors that take the place of God, that give us a sense of peace, joy, Identity, make us feel good, make us feel significant and loved and whatever. And God is saying, all of those things are figments of your imagination, and I'm going to destroy every single functional Savior in your sight. You're going to watch them one by one go down in these plagues. And I'm going to show that I am the only one who has power. Hence, he says, I will strike down and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments because I am the Lord. There's one who causes to be. There's one who speaks the world in existence. There's one who's created you to know him. There's only one in the world worthy of being worshipped and living our lives for and surrendering our lives, laying our lives down and surrendering, humbling ourselves. There's only one, and it's the Lord. He alone is worthy of our Worship in our affections, in our lives, surrender. Our money, our time, our families, everything surrendered. He is the Lord. Because how can we find joy and peace and happiness and true pleasure apart from knowing the Creator? To worship the created things, to put our faith and trust in the created things is idolatry. But if we would be thankful for the created things and allow them to lift us up to look at the creator and we would give all of our affection and our heart and our love that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength. That is the essence of life. 
And so he destroys all the functional saviors of the land. So he tells them, redefine your life. Redefining our lives. We need to redefine our lives. And then the functional saviors, understand, they're all gone. They're destroyed. None of them are going to help you. And then the, the next thing he tells them, prepare your homes. I want you to go take a lamb. I want you to set apart. And really quickly, let me give you just a couple thoughts about this lamb. Takes this little lamb. They're going to set it apart. And they're going to keep it away from the other sheep, goats, whatever. Why, why is that? For, for two reasons. One, to isolate it. So that if there's a potential disease or sickness in something else, one of the other lambs, this is one that looks, this is the healthiest, unblemished, clearly most unblemished lamb. We want to find the unblemished, healthiest lamb. We want to isolate it so it doesn't potentially get sick from one of the other ones, and it's set apart. But the thing about lambs is they like to be with the rest of the lambs. And so it would have been a really interesting experience because they would have heard the bleeding of that little lamb, um, the crying out of that little, as it wanted to be back with the others. Second thing is this is a year-old lamb. So it's not just a tiny little fragile thing, um, but it's not a big old whatever lamb. But this is a lamb at its prime, strong, able, healthy, at its prime. And then, as I already mentioned, it's unblemished, unspotted. There's no sickness, no marking, nothing that is unclean on this lamb. And that is the, is there a more beautiful picture of Christ? Jesus a week before he dies on the cross, actually less than a week before he dies on the cross, he's coming into the city, Jerusalem, and he is celebrated as the Messiah. And they sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they scream out, God, save us. God, save us. And they lay down palm fronds in front of him to, to uh, make the way holy as, as Jesus comes in. And they worship him as the king and as God coming in his presence to Jerusalem, and they celebrate him. And then over the next several days, he is tested. The Pharisees, the lawyers, the Sadducees, the priests, everybody comes and they test and they challenge Jesus. And Jesus gives some of the most beautiful, amazing, powerful teaching over those few days, significant teaching as he's challenged. And once again, time and time again, he proves himself sinless, wise, and the only fit sacrifice for our sins as he challenges the legalism and the idolatry and the false religion that had taken over Israel. And so not only is he set apart, he's tested, clearly unblemished, at the height of his uh, health and at the height of of his manhood. He He is a strong man, around 30 years old. He's at the height of his strength. Fit, able. Nobody caught Jesus and put him on a cross because he wasn't strong enough or fast enough to get away. He willingly laid down his life. And he, though the lion from the tribe of Judah, became the lamb and gave himself up to be crucified on our behalf. Functional saviors destroyed and then the homes prepared. Preparing the home. Why did they prepare the home? Well, they prepared the home so that the angel of destruction would pass over. It says in verse uh, 23, For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintels and on the doorposts, and when he comes to the land, the Lord has given you a promise. Um, I'm sorry, sees the, the, the blood on the lintel and the doorpost. The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter and strike you. You shall observe this right 
as a statue for you and your sons forever. When Jesus, when the destroyer would come, the angel that came on behalf of God to destroy, he would look and he would examine. And here's, here's what he would do. He would look at each home and he looked and he inspected them. And he didn't look inside to see, you know, is this a good family? This is a really good family. I mean, you know, they're not perfect, but they're really good. This family is, they're pretty righteous. They're, pretty, they're a pretty good family. I like this family. No, he, he looked and he didn't look inside and go, you know what, they, they've got some amazing functional saviors in there. That, that will save them. I'm just going to pass over because they've got functional saviors in there. And so those functional saviors, that'll take care of them. That's, that'll be great for them. I'll just, I'll just uh, walk by and I won't destroy them. No. He didn't look at their righteousness. He didn't look at their goodness. He didn't look and say, well, they're so sweet, beautiful kids. Everything's great. I went, no. He looked for the blood. And the only thing that would cause the destroyer to pass by was not the functional saviors inside. Those have been destroyed. It wasn't the righteousness and the religiosity of the people inside. And it wasn't that God just made a di- distinction between his people and the, the, the Egyptian people because he had done that with the other plagues. He, just, he caused the plague to destroy and to uh, the pressure, the, the, the pain of the plague to be upon the Egyptians, but he made a distinction between his people and the Egyptians, and he just chose not to drop the hail or the locust or the darkness or all these different plagues. They weren't, the Israelites didn't feel the effects of this, but the final 10th plague, the Passover, was different. And only those that obeyed God's command, that took the lamb, put the blood in the basin, and put the blood on the doorpost, those are the only ones that were preserved. And God came up, the destroyer came to every home and inspected. When he saw the blood, he passed by. God examines all of our lives. He, he looks at all of our lives. And when he examines your life, what covers you? What is it that you hide behind? What is it? Have you created like Adam and Eve? Your own coverings made of leaves? You know, have you constructed your own righteousness? I mean, you might have constructed a really good righteousness. Or do you just say, well, you know, I'm just going to pretend that God isn't going to judge me, and I'm just going to look to my functional saviors, and I'm just going to pretend there's not a judgment. I'm going to look to them, and they'll give me hope and peace and joy and whatever, and I, I don't even have to think about that. You have your Jesus, you have your religion, but I'm going to do my own thing. Maybe that's the way you think. Or maybe that you, uh, you try to do the Jesus thing, but then there's a whole bunch of functional saviors you're holding on to in the inside too. No, no, those, those are gone. Those have been destroyed. The only thing that will cause God to pass over your sin one day when you stand before the judgment seat of God, and Jesus Christ, by the way, comes back, and he is the judge, is whether or not his blood has covered your life. That's the only thing. The blood of Christ cover your sin. Does the blood of Christ spared you? Verse 29. At the midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, the firstborn of the livestock. And the Pharaoh rose up in the morning, I mean at night, and he and all his servants of the Egyptians, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Every single 
house. Somebody was dead. Somebody was dead. There was death in every home. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. They were done. They were like, let's get rid of these people. And so they said, we shall all be dead. If we don't send you out, if we don't get rid of you, we'll all be dead. And so the people took their dough before it was leavened in their kneading bowls, and they bound them up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. So they took the dough, the unleavened bread, put it in the bowl, put their cloak over it, threw it over their shoulder, and the people of Israel had done As Moses told them, and they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sights of the Egyptians so that they they let them have what they asked, and they plundered the Egyptians. Not only were they saved from destruction, but get this, God gave them an inheritance that they didn't earn. They did not deserve. He gave them wealth, and he gave them so much stuff that they were given freely that they did not accomplish except by the grace of God. God gave them favor and they were able to plunder the Egyptians by the power of God. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So you're talking about 2 million people. And just jump down to verse 42, and that's our last verse I want to look at, and then we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper He says in verse 42, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations, throughout their generations. One of the reasons we're inviting the kids, the older kids to come and be a part of this, because this isn't for a certain age group. This is for all of us. This is for all of us. All of us are at an age where we understand our need for Christ and we're at a point where we need to surrender our lives to Christ. We understand the bondage that comes with the flesh and the world and the devil and with the pressures of sin. And we know that we need a Savior. He says, you're going to do this every year to remember this, except Jesus takes this image and he tweaks it a little bit. So the Passover meal would be celebrated annually to remember God's Passover when he passed over his people as they hid themselves behind the bloody doorposts. This image in the feast remembered was to be remembered, but also it looked forward to a future day when another firstborn son would come. And that firstborn son would not be spared. And that would be the firstborn son of God. Jesus would come, the firstborn son, and God would take all of the wrath that he passed over the Egyptians. You know, incidentally, this, the blood on the doorpost, did not prevent the wrath of God from being poured out on their lives. Get this. The blood on the doorpost did not prevent. It foreshadowed the blood of the firstborn son, Jesus Christ, that would be shed on their behalf. So God gave them this as a picture, as a shadow, as an image to remember what he had done because there would be a future day where he would actually really pay for this. This was just a a down payment. This was just an IOU check here written out saying one day i'm going to pay for this and in that time jesus comes celebrates the passover meal with his disciples 
And the next day, he is crucified, nailed to the cross, and the firstborn Son of God is crushed by the Father's wrath against sin. Firstborn Son Jesus would not be spared by the blood of the Lamb. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, uh, Paul's confronting sin in the body of Christ at the Corinthian church that they had unaddressed. They were saying that they felt like they were really prideful because they were so loving as to love these people in their sin. And yet some people that had professed to be followers of Christ that were members of the Corinthian church were in open sin. And so he says, you're arrogant not to deal with that because sin is a picture of leaven and leaven, a little bit of leaven is going to leaven the whole dough. So he says this, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and of evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Over the next moments, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together, and the challenge for you is to deal with the leaven in your heart. I want you to understand that God has already provided a sacrifice. He is the Passover lamb. He's already paid for the leaven in your heart and your life, but we need to nonetheless clean it out. And so this is a moment for us to allow God's spirit to turn inward on us and to point out, is there sin, God, in my life? Is there unconfessed sin? Or is there sin that, that I know of, that you know I know, and I, you've convicted me of, but I've just continued to hide it? Are there functional saviors that I'm looking to, that I've, I've gotten out of the box and I've, I've put back up on the shelf and I'm starting to worship these things again? Are there, what, do some business with God, because we don't partake in this. Going through the ritual of, of remembering God's Jesus' body broken for us and blood shed for us does not take away your sins. Jesus took away your sins. But he does say, don't you draw near to the table with unconfessed sin in your life. Because if you do, you bring condemnation on yourself. Don't you partake in this picture if you have not surrendered your life to Christ. Or if there's unconfessed sin in your life because you're bringing condemnation on yourself. He tells us later in Corinthians. So in Luke chapter 22, let me set this up. Verse 7, it says, They came that day. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And then seven verses later, verse 14, When the hour came, he reclined at the table, Jesus, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired, (laughs) I love this, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. Jesus is saying, man, every year since I was old enough to remember and to understand the Passover, I've been looking at this image and I've been so excited to this moment where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become. I, in a moment, he's going to be praying and saying, God, is there any possible other way? And he's going to be in such intense agony thinking about the pain that he's about to go through. But besides the pain, for the joy set before him, he was willing to endure the cross. And that joy he's, he's expressing in this moment where he's saying, I have eagerly, I've eagerly been so excited to, to commemorate the Passover with you and to take this image to the next level and help you see what this is all about. We're going to take this shadow, and for the first time in world history, you're going to understand what has cast the shadow on the Old Testament. You're going to see the source, and that's me. I'm the Passover lamb. I've been so excited to partake of this with you. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled. I will not eat this again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup. 
And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In Matthew 26, 26, another version, same story. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of, of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new and you in my, um, with you in my Father's kingdom. There's two reasons we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we're about to partake in, which is the new Passover. Doesn't mean you can't do Passover to commemorate what God did. I would encourage your families to celebrate the Passover. It's a great way to remember what Jesus did. But we're not commanded to do that in the New Testament, but we are commanded to do this. And as often as we do this, we do this for two reasons. Passover, the, uh, the two reasons for celebrating the Lord's Supper. One, it looks backward at what Jesus, how God had delivered his people and the, the foreshadowing and the promise that Jesus would come. So it looks backwards, remembering the pattern God had given that was fulfilled in Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. Secondly, so not only does it commemorate Jesus' redemptive death on our place, but secondly, it anticipates, anticipates the return of Jesus when he will come in the company of all the redeemed. He'll come back and he will judge the living and the dead. So we're thinking about what Jesus has done. We're thinking about what he is going to do. And he is still on his throne. We're cleaning out the leaven in our hearts. 